The U.S. women's national team's first game of 2023 is in the books. It was a 4-0 win over New Zealand in New Zealand on Tuesday night. At least it was Tuesday for us here in the U.S. For the players, it was Wednesday over on the other side of the world. The U.S. plays New Zealand again on Friday or Saturday, depending on where you live. But why travel thousands and thousands of miles just for a pair of friendlies? Well, that's what we're here to talk about on today's show. Spoiler alert, that's where the World Cup's going to be. I'm Joe Lowry, and welcome to the Backheeled Show, where we bring you American soccer coverage in just 10 minutes or less. On today's episode, I'm joined by USWNT expert and Just Women's Sports staff writer Claire Watkins. Claire knows her stuff and has spent years covering this U.S. team. She'll help us put more context around these U.S. matches, the U.S. women's national team as a whole, and hey, we'll even talk a bit about the NWSL draft and players to watch later on in the show. Here at Backheeled, we believe that just because soccer games are 90 minutes long doesn't mean that soccer podcasts have to be. So let's get to it and talk soccer. I'm now joined by Claire Watkins. Claire, thanks for coming on the show. Of course. Thanks so much for having me. All right. So let's get right into some U.S. Women's National Team chat. Claire, for the U.S., what is the point of this extended trip to New Zealand? Is it about soccer or is it about experiencing everything else ahead of a return trip to New Zealand this summer? I think it's the latter. Um, U.S. Soccer did say that they scheduled this trip before they found out that the actual group stage that they'll be holding will be in New Zealand. But I do think they like to travel at the beginning of each year. As we know, U.S. Soccer has some of these rules about how many trips they can take, how much many times they need to play in the States. So this is their chance to do, I think, a big road trip. I think this is probably their last one before the World Cup itself. And we have to remind ourselves that most of this roster has never done anything quite like this before. This is very different even than the Tokyo 2020 roster. So I think it's as much about the traveling experience as it is about the games, though obviously they don't always play games in the January camp. So them even scheduling these, I think, is further evaluation. But I do think it's also just to see how this roster handles this kind of a big trip. I want to ask more about this New Zealand trip. But first, Claire, maybe other folks out there know, and I'm showing my ignorance here, what are these rules about, you know, the U.S. national teams having to play X number of games or taking, you know, fewer trips that you referenced there? What did, what does that look like? Yeah. So U.S. soccer, this is written into the CBA. It's also part of their own internal planning, but they have quotas on which particular international windows the U.S. spends on away trips and which ones they spend in the States. And a lot of that just has to do with, I think, part of the, you know, the, <laughs> the mission statement of growing the game domestically. They want to be able to play in front of U.S. Fans. Um, so, like for example, the She Believes, there are a number of international tournaments that take place in either that February or March international window. For the US, they are locked into hosting. So, they are determinant for their competition on who wants to come here. And that's actually why we've seen at times the competition be quite high. We've seen it be a little bit lower. Each federation kind of has to figure out okay, how are we growing the game at home? How are we challenging the team traveling? And so for the U.S., that's why they primarily play most of their games in the United States. Getting back to this trip abroad to New Zealand, Claire, how valuable do you think this trip will end up being? It's not something we can totally measure, but do you think this will pay off later this year at the World Cup? 
I think it's the kind of trip you do because it could. I don't think there's any harm in it. I think it's probably also good for the U.S. soccer, the the greater team around the team to get feet on the ground and sort of get the lay of the land for New Zealand. And like I said, it kind of works out coincidentally that they will be literally playing in the country for their group stage. I We've also, though, seen some of this hyper planning from the U.S. Does it help? Does it hurt? We saw some very specific things before the Olympics in terms of heat training and, and practicing for specific uh, environments in Japan that did they pay off? Not so sure. But I do think this is the kind of trip you do because you can and you want to at least say that you did it once you have feet on the ground this summer. Are other nations going to do the same thing? Are they going to New Zealand or Australia ahead of this summer's tournament? Or is the U.S. kind of unique in this way? So New Zealand in particular will be, they're not actually participating because obviously they've already qualified as hosts, but they will be there for the intercontinental playoff, which is taking place in February of this year. So these are still the teams yet to be determined to join that 32 team pool for the group stage. So that will be taking place in New Zealand. So those teams in particular will have experience in the area, which I think is positive because many of them could be debutants. We've also seen a number of different teams go to Australia itself, Australian mainland. We've seen, I think Australia recently played Spain. So we have seen more probably aggressive scheduling from the Matildas, who themselves, I think, have to think they would like to have a shot at at a medal. But for New Zealand specifically, it's probably going to be the intercontinental playoff and then them figuring out who else they can play before the tournament begins. You referenced the 32-team format there. FIFA said earlier this week that more than 500,000 tickets have been sold for this World Cup. It's going to be the biggest World Cup ever involving those 32 teams Does the size of this particular tournament and this expanded format change anything for the U.S. in terms of their preparation or in terms of maybe how the tournament might end up playing out? I don't think the former. I think what the U.S. has always said and and they take very seriously is that they treat every single game like it's very important. Famously, there was the Thailand result and that was in a smaller format tournament, right? So I think that for them, they're going to treat every opponent with respect and they're probably not going to want to put their foot on, you know, foot off the gas at any point. For reality, for us third parties here trying to analyze their uh, road to the final, it is a little bit, quote unquote, easier. They're on a friendly side of the bracket. They're in a very friendly group, um, especially, unfortunately, with Vivian Miedema going down with an ACL injury for the Netherlands, which is the probably highest contender for that top spot in their group. It's friendlier. It is actually friendlier to the U.S., which I think will be different for fans because, as they recall, in 2019, the U.S. basically had to go through all of the world's best to even make it to the final. They're kind of on the flip side of that this time. They're having more of that journey where they have stiff competition ahead of them, but it's an easier road to that final game than we saw in 2019. Before the tournament kicks off, what are things that the U.S. still need to do? What's on their to-do list? What's left to be ironed out and figured out before the World Cup starts? Oh, gosh, there's quite a bit, to be honest. They've been hindered by injuries, which has slowed down some of the progress of sort of what Vlako Andonovsky wants. But I think if you're looking at all of the games that they're going to be playing from now until the World Cup, I think eyes need to be on the midfield. They really haven't figured out how to get that number six, number eight, number 10 structure to work together. Sometimes the, the number six feels like she's on an island. Sometimes their number 10 feels like she's on an island. It's just not very cohesive right now. Um, distribution is a little bit pretty predictable. They like to kick it out wide and send it back in. So it's those kinds of nuances of how are you playing when you are at your best? Because sometimes it feels like either the U.S. is looking too inwardly or they're too reactionary. And then in terms of personnel, I still think the back line's pretty unsettled. I do not think that the U.S. is, if you look at their 2022, you might see some players who saw 
quite a few minutes in 2022 that are still even on the bubble once some of these more core players return. So I don't think anybody's been infallible outside of perhaps, you know, the the wonder wonder rookie Naomi Gurma. But those are where I would say personnel, you might see some changes. One last question before I let you go, Claire. Many U.S. Women's National Team fans are dialed into the NWSL. We are here at Backfield as well. The NWSL draft was last week. Who were a couple of names from that draft who we could start to see integrated into the national team, not before the World Cup, but maybe sometime afterwards? Yeah, I think an obvious answer is Alyssa Thompson, who went number one and got her first U.S. caps in October. Um, she's young. She's only 18. Uh, Andonovsky, I think, has he's made it very clear that she's in the team's future plans, though obviously very difficult to break into this particular group. But I don't think she would have gone pro if she hadn't thought that there was some percentage of a chance, you know, maybe someone gets hurt and, and something changes and she does find herself on her way to, to Australia. So I think that that's the, the main one. Michelle Cooper, who went number two is a forward kind of a dynamic playmaker a collaborative forward who was the captain of the u20s at the u20 world cup last year she won the golden ball in Concacaf qualifying u20 qualifying last year she's a player that i think we could see integrated back in and then this isn't nwsl but i'm sure uh, people have heard the chatter which is the question of, of me official who's playing for tigres down in liga emekis femenil of, of when will we see that player in this pool if this particular window isn't her time just yet so i think that those are the three i would look at for now claire thank you so much for joining me i really appreciate it anything you want to plug or any projects you're working on that you want to tell people about yeah, just you know, follow follow my work at Just Women's Sports. I cover the U.S., cover NWSL, and uh, send a, a full women's sports newsletter to your inbox three days a week. So if anybody wants to check that stuff out, please do. There will be a link to follow Claire in the show notes. In the meantime, that's it for this episode of The Backheeled Show. If you're looking for more American soccer coverage, check out backheeled.com. We'll talk to you again soon. 